Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, we're in uh, this series, uh, Identity and Calling. Discovering our identity in Christ. Who are we? You know, the world has a lot to say about who we are how we should engage in the world, where your significance, where your value comes from. But we discovered last week, and we're going to jump back there in Matthew chapter 3, we, we went to this story in which we discovered Jesus' identity and calling. That you don't think of Jesus as someone that's developing his identity, you would assume, because he's God, but he's also fully human. He would have known his identity from the beginning, and yet he grew in wisdom and understanding. He came to understand who he was. And see, in understanding who he was, he also understood what it meant to live his life, what God had called him to do. Because see, what we do really is supposed to flow out of who we are. Our identity leads to our calling. And so there's a book I want to share with you. I mentioned this last week. It's called The Gift of Being Yourself. A lot of the ideas for this message series over the next few weeks comes from that book. So if you want a book to pick up early in this year to start yourself off, this is a fantastic book to pick up. A few definitions just to remind you. First of all, identity and calling. Identity means who you are. But notice it also means who you're becoming. That God doesn't define you by your past, but you know he doesn't define you by your present. God actually defines you by who you will be in the future. Because see, that's how he sees you today. So our identity is who we are and who we're becoming, and our calling is what we do. Now, there's a few questions we need to ask ourselves when it comes to our identity, because, see, our identity is what is identical about you no matter where you are. So when you think of your identity, we wear a lot of roles and hats that we play, but your identity refers to what's the same thing about you no matter where you are or who you are or the time that you're in. That's what your identity is. And also your identity is that which gives you value, significance, and worth. So as you think about that, start imagining, wondering, what is it that really defines you? What's identical about you, no matter where you are? And what gives you significance, value, and worth? And then lastly, I'm going to show this graphic because I think this is helpful. Identity is how you see yourself. But realize it also impacts how you see God and how you see others. And so whatever is at the center of your life is going to influence the way that you see God. It's going to completely influence the way you see yourself, and it's also going to influence the way that you see the world around you. So let's jump back into Matthew chapter 3 and look again at this key moment in Jesus' life in which he discovers or he understands or we fully understand his identity and calling. Matthew chapter 3 verse 13. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, hey, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. 
Father, as we gather this morning, our desire is, is to know you, to be known by you. And I thank you, Father, that the depths of our identity are not captured in how well we know ourselves, but how well you know us and the gift that you've given us in Christ. So would you guide us and teach us, lead us, and direct us in Jesus' name? Amen. There's a quote I want to share with you by the author Ralph Ellison who wrote the novel The Invisible Man. He was asked this question, would you say that the search for identity is primarily an American theme? To which he said, it is the American theme. When you look at the movies, the stories that we follow, there's a story that came out, a movie that came out in the 1940s. It was one of Disney's most popular and enduring films. And it's the one film that has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Do you know what it is? It's Pinocchio. And Pinocchio is a story about discovering your identity. It's really about a woodcarver named Geppetto. And Geppetto longs to have a son. And so he carves this boy out of wood. And as Geppetto is sleeping that night, this fairy comes, and Pinocchio is alive. And the fairy says to Pinocchio, if you want to be a real boy, you have to live a brave and selfless life. And so the rest of the story is really Pinocchio learning to discover his identity, and he has some trouble along the way, but thankfully he's got Jiminy Cricket to kind of guide him as his conscience. And instead of going to school, he goes to like a puppet show, you know, every time he tells a lie, instead of telling the truth, he tells a lie and his nose begins to grow. Instead of doing what he needs to do, he goes to Pleasure Island. And eventually he hears that Geppetto is in trouble. And so Pinocchio goes to rescue him. And in this moment of bravery and selflessness, he becomes a real boy. And it's a story of Pinocchio discovering his identity. And most of the movies we watch in our culture are really identity movies. Elsa, Frozen. Let it go. What is she letting go? All the identities that are coming from the outside, and I just need to be who I am. How about Rocky Balboa? What drove Rocky? I need to prove that I'm not just another bum. Luke Skywalker. Who's my father? Who am I? If that's who my father is, what does that say about who I am and how I'm to live my life? All of these stories, they're endearing. But there's stories about discovering, understanding your identity. And I'd suggest to you, as disciples in Christ, one of the key aspects of following Jesus is to know who you are. And not who you are just in terms of the world or who you see yourself to be, but who does God say that you are? And then do we believe that? Do we trust it? And what does it really look like to live out of the reality of what God says about us? So junk. Jump back again in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. And I want to read this again and just think about where Jesus gets his identity from. When, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens, they open up. And when he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, he heard a voice. And this voice said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Why is that so important? If you've ever read the Gospels, do you realize all the false expectations that were put on Jesus? 
Just read the Gospels. And so often the people around him are trying to tell Jesus, this is what you need to do. Even his own family. There's a moment where the family comes to him and Jesus says, my family are my brothers and sisters, those who do my will. And, and they thought he was nuts. Mark chapter 3, go read it. His family had expectations. This is how you're supposed to live your life, Jesus. This is who you are. His disciples, right? The guys that were closest to him. Jesus, when you, when you come to your kingdom, right, in power, and you destroy all the bad guys, I want to sit at your left and your right. These are my expectations for you. Be who I want you to be. The crowds, Crowds are constantly putting expectations on Jesus. And then finally, in his own temptation, the devil. He's not tempting him simply to sin. Go back and read Matthew chapter 4. He's tempting him to doubt his identity. If you are the son of God. Are you really who God says you are? Because see, if he can... If he can change Jesus' identity in the way he sees himself, he can direct Jesus' life. And I'd say the same is true for us. Whatever captures our identity captures the direction in the course of our life. Your identity, it matters. And so I'm going to share with you just four areas, four things that I think we're tempted often to put our identity in. And the first is performance. We live in a results-based culture, and the lie is, I am what I do. I am what I produce. Now, realize that can be produced in the positive or in the negative. You know, I knew somebody who was an incredible, gifted leader, and yet because she hadn't gone to college, she felt less of herself because she didn't have that accomplishment. And yet she was one of the best servants I had ever worked with. But she carried that in her identity. And some of us carry that when it comes to our success, what I've accomplished, the school I've gone to, the money that I've made, the accolades that I have, the people I work with, that what I do really influences the way I see myself. And a lot of us get caught up that I am what I've accomplished. Or maybe it's not just accomplishments for you. It could be possessions. I am what I have. A lot of people, I am what I wear. That what they wear is a signal. It's, it's sending uh, this message out to the rest of the world. This is who I am. Or maybe I am what I drive. I am where I live. Maybe that means a lot to us. I am the house that I live in. Our possessions have this way of defining us. I know when I was a kid, there were some jeans that today they look so, so stupid. But I was in seventh grade and I told my mom I have to have them. And my mom was so kind, she drove me, have you ever had to do this? Drove across town from store to store to find these stupid jeans. Because in my seventh grade mind, if I wore them, then I was somebody. I don't think we outgrow that. It just gets a little more mature. I am what I have. Or let's get a little more personal. We can also base our identity in our pleasures. I am what I desire. This speaks highly to our culture today. I am what I want. This addresses our own sexuality. That often in our culture, 
our sexuality becomes a place of identity. And understand, I'm not minimizing your sexuality. It is an incredibly beautiful and powerful desire that's within you. But is it the totality of who you are? Can it define your purpose? Can it define your worth? Can it define your significance? Jesus never expressed his sexuality, and yet he was fully human, fully complete. And often what we do is we'll place our identity in our own desires. And then finally, we may place our identity in our popularity. This is the lie, I am what you think of me. That we often uh, have a hard time escaping the high school cafeteria. Do you remember those days? Man, I hated that when I didn't know who was going to be in my lunch. Did I have A, B, or C? And who am I going to sit with? What table am I going to be at? And you walk into that room, right? And you're surveying. You're like, okay, okay, where am I going? Because this is going to establish me for the rest of this year, right? This is how people are going to know me. And some of you still walk into rooms today the exact same way, right? You're kind of looking, who do I need to be recognized by? Who do I need to be? Who are my people? And those people give you a sense of identity. It's kind of a tribalism, isn't it? You know, early on in ministry, this was something that deeply impacted me. Ministry has a lot of rejection in it. Standing up front, you kind of feel exposed, naked. And I remember as a very young pastor in a small church, there would be this couple or this single person that would come into my church, and I just thought, man, you know what? If she stayed If she got involved, then I'd know I was a good pastor. If that couple stayed and if they got involved, then I would know I'm significant. And somehow, eventually, one of those couples stayed or one of those people stayed. And then I got to know them, and it wasn't enough. I needed the next person and the next person. And many of us put our identity in what other people think about us. So it could be your possessions. It could be popularity. It could be pleasures, desires. All of these things can play a role in defining who we are. But Jesus would say to us, when we're basing our identity on those things, we're basing our identity on sifting sand instead of building our life on a rock. Now, why is that? Possessions, popularity, pleasures, they can all be taken away. If you base your identity in something that can be taken away, then you're taken away. What happens when you base your identity in your job and your job's taken away? Or in your income? And your income is taken away. Your popularity or maybe what you can produce, what you can do, and eventually you can't do the thing that everybody values, and now that you can't do that thing, who are you? And see, if you base your identity on something that can be taken away, your foundation of your life is on sifting sand. And so, what does it look like to base our identity in Jesus? I want to jump to a few passages. We're going to look at two. The first is in Galatians chapter 3. And there's a key phrase in the New Testament, and it's the idea that you and I, when you trust in Jesus, you become a disciple, you follow Jesus, you are in Christ. And what does that mean? First of all, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. And it says this, For in Christ, that's the key word, You're all sons of God through faith. Now, let me pause. I know there's not all sons in here. We got some daughters, too. But see, the New Testament language, what it's referring to is a cultural reality that sons were those that inherited their father's estate. 
daughters did not inherit. And so what it's saying is through faith in Jesus, men and women are heirs of all that Christ has, his kingdom. So watch this, verse 27. But as many of you were baptized, again, were baptized, there's the phrase, into Christ, we put on Christ. Meaning that Christ is now my identity. He's how I see myself, he's how I see God, he's how I see others. So notice, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Now, ethnicity, that's, that's a big identity marker. But he's saying Christ is greater than that. There's neither slave nor free. Socioeconomic status, that's a huge identity marker. But Christ is greater. Male or female, sexuality, huge identity marker. Christ is greater, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, before I am a particular political party, I am in Christ. And Christ dictates how I see my political affiliations. My political affiliations don't dictate how I see Christ. I'm an American, but see, I am in Christ first. I am Anglo, and yet I am in Christ first. Let me share with you one way this impacted me. When I went to Kenya, we used to take trips to Kenya to work with uh, some partners that we had there. And we would go to these very small villages, you know, villages where they really hadn't seen a lot of white folks. And it was always interesting to go there, to stand out, to be different. And I remember going to this little church, and there was an older woman that was there. She had very, very little. She was poor. She had, probably didn't have an education. I don't know if she could read. I couldn't even speak her language. And so in terms of the world, possessions, right, all of that stuff we talked about, I was the superior. But as I got to know her, because we were in Christ, I realized I am sitting next to a spiritual giant. Because she was the anchor of that community, the anchor of that church, the anchor of her family. She was self-sacrificing. She loved Jesus. And when we sang the same songs together, I mean, I felt like I was sitting next to somebody who could really show me who Jesus was. The only way that's possible is being in Christ and a different set of values directs how I see her. Being in Christ changes everything about how we see God and what we truly value. And so again, let's go to Ephesians chapter one. I wanna show you this same idea of being in Christ. And, and notice how many times the word in Christ or in him shows up. So watch this. This is, a, this is a little long, verses three to 14. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him, in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
And so in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know, in the Greek, that's one sentence. Right? Paul is so excited. He's just run on, run on, run on, run on. This is who God is and this is who we are. And 10 times, I counted 10, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Because of the fact that you were in Christ, all of chapter one and actually chapter one, two, and three of Ephesians, it's just saying this is who you are. Because of what Jesus has done, this is who you are. The question is, do you see yourself that way? And if you did, how would that that change your life? Now, when you see the word Christ, we need to explain that because often when we see Christ, we think second member of Trinity. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Christ is not simply referring to the second member of the Trinity. It refers to the Messiah. Messiah means in the Old Testament, the long-awaited king. And see, this long-awaited king would come, be Israel's promised king, and when the king came, the king would set right everything, everything that's gone wrong. And see, the king was the one who was the representative of Israel. So what was true of the king and what the king accomplished, everybody else accomplished. N.T. Wright explains it better. He said it this way. And I quote, When Paul speaks to us of being in Christ... The center of what he means is that the king represents his people so that what happens to him happens to them. What's true of the king, what's true of him is also true of them. Okay, here's a story, David and Goliath. You know that story? Okay, Goliath goes out and he represents the Philistines. And he's taunting them. I mean, big dude, tough. He goes out there and says, who wants to take me on? I'm representing the Philistine army. And then David, this little guy, comes out, right? And David represents the Israelites. And what happens? If you don't know the outcome, David wins. Yeah. Hopefully you read that. I'm not giving up the plot. And what happens? The entire Israelite army was victorious in his victory. They were set free through his freedom. Because everything that is true of David suddenly in his victory becomes true of them because he is their representative. And that idea is what it means to be in Christ. That the New Testament is telling you everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. When you put your faith in him and you follow him and you're a disciple of Jesus and you want to know him and trust him and you know that he saved you and rescued you, what is true of Jesus, the moment you trust in him suddenly becomes true of who you are and it's most true of who you're becoming. And everything that he's saying in the book of Ephesians, he's trying to unpack the richness. So I want to jump back there just one more time. And I want to list out some of these identity qualities verse by verse. First of all, verse 3, if you want to put that up. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. This week, one of the things I'm going to challenge you to do is go back into this passage and just read this over you. And maybe put your name in. Jason is blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, you are chosen before the foundation of the world. You are, realize, holy and blameless. That's your identity. That's your future. Verse 5, you were loved, predestined, adopted as sons and daughters. You were under God's purpose and will. 
Verse six, you are to the praise of God's glorious grace. This is on your worst day, guys. This is who you are. Verse seven, you were redeemed, you were forgiven, you were rich in God's grace. Verse eight, you are wise. You probably didn't know you were wise. People have been telling you. And you have great understanding. Verse nine, you're aware of the mystery in Christ. Verse 11, you're an heir and predestined. Again, verse 12, you're to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, you are included, you are saved. You are sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. Verse 14, you are an heir and to the praise of his glory. This is who you are, but understand, this is the realest thing about who you're becoming. Because see, God, what he's doing is he's speaking your identity, but he's also speaking into your life, your future. He's telling you who you are so that you might live into the richness of who you are. For the first three chapters, all Paul does is he reminds us of who we are. He's going to go on and say, hey, you're God's workmanship. You may not know this, which in the Greek is you're God's poetry. Even in your broken, sinful self, you are God's poetry created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Hey, you were once dead. You're now alive again. You were clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Never say again that you are worthless. This is who you are. And like a father speaking to his seven-year-old daughter, he's speaking into her life, her future existence, and he wants her to see it today so that she can grow up into it tomorrow. Does that make sense? Not what the world is saying, not what my money's saying or my body's saying, but what I say, your father, the one that rescued and redeemed you, I wanna speak it over you so that you might have the courage to live it out in your life. This is what Paul's telling us about who we are. And what's really fascinating in the book of Ephesians, not till you get to chapter four, do you come to the first command? The first three chapters, no commands. Great, you guys should read that every day, right? It's like, listen, I don't have to do anything. I just need to listen to God tell me how great I am. And then chapter four, verse one, here's what he says. First command, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you guys, take hold of it. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Take hold of your identity and walk worthy. Then there's a whole bunch of commands that's coming, okay? And what he describes in the rest of this, humility, gentleness, patience, he's describing what it looks like to live out of that. Live worthy. Now, what does that mean? August 1st, 1998. That's when I became a husband. Now, on August 1st, 1998, did I have a clue? We can be Pentecostal today. This boy had no clue. I think my wife had a better clue. She should have been smarter. I didn't know how to be a husband. But when he said, you know, I pronounce you husband, I'm it. This year we celebrate 25 years. 25 years. Do I look that old? Yeah. No. I'm no more Melissa's husband today than I was then. But I'm living into the worthiness of that calling, right? I'm living it out. So a couple more dates, pretty important. May 23rd, 2004, April 14th. 2007. 
Those were the days where I became a father. Now, did I understand what it was to be a father on that day? No. I had a little idea. I read the book, you know, expect when you're expecting or whatever that is. What to expect when you're expecting or I don't know. And every day since then, I'm trying to live out of the worthiness of that call. I'm trying to to be the father that they need me to be. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying earn it. He's saying live it out. Hold on to it. Be who God has has created you to be. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning to be who I truly am in Christ. I mentioned that book, The Gift of Being Yourself, David Benner. I want to read this quote to you. He captures it this way. He said, Christians affirm a foundation of identity that is absolutely, absolutely unique in the market place of spiritualities. Whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. Love is our identity and our calling, for we are children of love, created from love, of love, for love. Our existence makes no sense apart from divine love. Neither knowing God nor knowing self can progress very far unless it begins with a knowledge of how deeply loved we are by God. Now, in order, in order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that should come to mind is our own status as someone who is deeply loved by God. That is where scripture takes us. That despite what you have done, you are deeply valued and loved by God. How would that change you if you took hold of it? How would it change the way you see God, you see yourself, and the way you see others? Because I think sometimes we look at this and we think of where we are today. It doesn't look as good as Ephesians chapter 1. I don't feel holy and blameless. I don't know if anyone else is with me. When I look at myself, I see my insecurities. I see where I fail. I see where I miss. And you know what I tend to do? I tend to sit right there. It's called sin management. I got to strengthen my way out of that, right? Just be tough, be a, be a man. Put all that aside. You know what I need in those moments is I need my father's voice. Just like you were when you were a kid. Hey dad, I failed, I've, I haven't measured up. Yeah, but listen, you're my son. And I know, I know it didn't work out, I know it didn't come out the way you desired, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Now live out of that identity. Our Father is constantly speaking over us, and I'm just challenging you today. Are you listening? Are you listening? And and just like you would speak over your own children, parents, speak over your children. Tell them that they are significant because they belong to you. They are loved. You should say that. You're my son. You're my daughter whom I love. You can steal it right from Scripture. God's okay. With whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And then as you see them, you start to see their qualities, right? Right? characteristics speak it out hey you're amazing with people i could see you leading people in the future i I could see you being a great engineer i could see you just understanding great concepts and explain as you see that you call it out why 
because you want them to live out of the fullness of who they are. That's all God's doing for you. But we have to be willing to receive it. Will you receive it this week? Will you listen to his voice? And then will you challenge and ask the Spirit, where am I not trusting this? Where am I not trusting this? Hey, we're gonna celebrate communion together. If you need to be prayed for after we celebrate communion, our prayer team, and prayer team, you know who you are. They're gonna be up front. And maybe you need to be prayed for this morning. You've lived for decades with this false idea of who you are. It could be a lie from the past, a lie from the present. Or you simply need to repent. Repentance means to turn. It's the best thing that we can do as Christians is just turn and look at our Father. Stop looking at the stuff in the world and look to our Father. And so if you didn't grab the communion elements, please come and grab them. They're available up front. They're also available in the back. And see, communion is a reminder of the gospel that the reason God accepts us is through Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. And that the reason what is true about Jesus is true about me because of my faith in what he's done. And his performance becomes my performance. But every week we want to celebrate that. And it's reminding us, grounding us back in the truth of what we believe, which is we're accepted through Jesus Christ by the Father. And we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So as we hold those elements together, let's spend some time reflecting on what God has said. And maybe whatever you need to deal with this morning, it could be between you and God. And let's spend that time talking to him. elements that represent your grace, your mercy, your salvation. Would we hear the voice of our Father saying, this is my daughter. This is my daughter. This is my son, my beloved son, whom I love. And with her, with him, I am well pleased. That on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, take and eat, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it together. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup. He said, this cup, it represents the new covenant, which means the relationship that is established through my blood. Let us receive it together.
Hey, if you want to uh, grab a Bible, and even if you don't want to, but uh, I'd ask you to, you can either turn it on or you can grab We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to prepare you a little bit for where we're headed. We're in this series, um, Discovering Kind of Your Identity and Calling. And I would say today's message that I'm going to walk through is probably one of the most missed in the church. And the path we're going to go on today is the contemplative life. The evangelical church has great teaching. Some of the greatest teachers come out of the evangelical church. But also some of the most emotionally unhealthy people come out of the evangelical church. We have great head knowledge, but sometimes it doesn't sink into heart knowledge. And so today we're going to be looking at what Jesus says about a health that goes deeper than the mind but goes down to the heart so that your heart and your mind are on the same page. And it's called the self-aware life, living out of your true self. Now, this isn't something that's new. I want you to know this theme goes all the way back to the first century and to the early church. So a few quotes. Fourth century, Augustine. Augustine said, How can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? Then he prayed this famous prayer, and this is a prayer you could take home with you today. Grant, Lord, that I may know myself. Hear these words. Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. In knowing yourself, there's an opportunity to have a deeper experience of God. And on the Protestant side, we got John Calvin in the Institutes, and he said it this way. Without knowledge of self, listen how strong that is, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourself. But these two are always connected by many ties. It's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. You cannot have knowledge of God unless you have knowledge of yourself. And then the book that a lot of this is based on is a book by a guy named David Benner. I'd encourage you to read it called The Gift of Being Yourself. And this is what he says. Christian spirituality has a great deal to do with the self and not just with God. Because the goal of the spiritual journey is the transformation of the self. This requires both knowing ourself and God. Both are necessary if we are to discover our true identity as those who are in Christ. Because the self is where we meet God. And both are also necessary if we are to live out of the uniqueness of our own vocation. So disciples of Jesus for centuries have said, if you do not know yourself well, how can you encounter God? And last week, we talked about what it means to be in Christ. That's Paul's favorite phrase for your identity, is that your identity is in Christ. And the idea is what is true of Jesus when you're in Christ becomes true of you. That you take on, in a sense, Jesus' relationship to the Father. So his life I don't know if you know this, he lived a perfect one. So did you. The Father sees you through the perfect life of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, which means sin has no hold on you. That power is gone because Jesus' death is your death. Jesus' resurrection to new life is your resurrection. Jesus' ascension to power and authority at the right hand of the Father is your place of authority and power. What is true of Jesus in Christ is also true of you. And that's what it means to be in Christ. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to move from your identity to focus on your calling. 
And we're going to discover there's two types of callings. First, Jesus calls us to be with him. When he said to his disciples, hey, come, follow me. Which means, before you do anything, guys, just hang out with me a little bit. I want to influence you. I want my life to be picked up in your life. So come and be with me. That's the inward calling. And the second calling is the calling of vocation, how we live that out in the world. Now, today, what we're going to focus on is that first aspect of calling, which is that inward calling to communion or union with God. And this is where Ephesians chapter 3 comes in. So if you guys are ready, you guys ready? I'm ready. I've been doing this all week, so I, I need to get this done. Ephesians, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Let's jump in. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, now being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, as we take a deep breath, acknowledge that you're here. We're here on Sunday. We set this time aside to meet with you and meet with each other. Would you have your way among us? Teach us, guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. April 14th, 1912. April 14th, 1912, on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City, the Titanic hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic Sea. And we know tragically in that accident, 1,500 people died, including Jack. <laughs> Though I'm still convinced, Rose, listen, there was enough room for Jack. Come on. They could have worked something out. But it was a tragic accident. It was a tragic accident because they could not see what was below the surface. They saw what was above the surface, but they could not see the danger that would sabotage this ship because of something that was much, much larger that was looming beneath the surface. And I think biblically, that's the same thing that's true for us, that often in our culture, we are encouraged to live above the surface, to live in our possessions to live in our success, to live in our pleasures, to live in our life above the surface. But see, what Paul's praying about in Ephesians 3 is that picture of going beneath the surface to what's actually motivating and directing your life. Now, in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, Pete Scazzaro says this. He says, human beings are like icebergs. 10% is above the surface and visible, but 90% percent is below the surface and is invisible. And I would suggest to you, more than just addressing your behaviors, Jesus is concerned about addressing your heart. 
And when I say your heart, I'm talking about your feelings, your desires, your longings, your hopes, your dreams, your visions, your goals. All of that is wrapped up. And the things that are directing your life are often not just assigned to your behavior. They're assigned to the way you're thinking, the way you're acting, the attitudes that you bring. God is interested in addressing the core issues of the heart. So I'm going to remind you of a couple things. You'll put that first image up of identity. Identity focuses on who you are in Christ, but it also focuses on who you're becoming. And see, your identity influences the way you see yourself, the way you see God, and the way you see others. Now, look at this next slide. Here's the direction we want to go. Sin is not the way that things are supposed to be. Can we agree? Sin separates. Sin wounds. Sin tears. Sin twists. A lot of those are the Hebrew words that God uses to describe sin. And because sin is not the way it's supposed to be, what sin does is it wounds the soul. Now, I don't know if you realize this. When somebody sins against you, there is a debt. There is a wound that occurs. Now, if that person doesn't go back to you and address it and heal it, what happens? Does it just disappear? It's still there. Now, some sins are surfaced, and hey, it didn't bother me that much, but we know there are things that people have done to us. But listen, there's also stuff that we have done that has kind of impacted down into our identity, and now we see ourselves based on what somebody's done to me or what I've done to somebody else. And I don't know if you realize this, but the word salvation in the Greek, it means to heal. And part of what God is doing in this life, in this walk with him, is he's healing us. Now, listen, how can he heal something unless you're willing to address it? How can God heal something unless you're willing to look at it and say, yep, I got an issue? And see, that's where Paul's taking us in Ephesians chapter 3. He's taking us below the surface and causing us to look within. And so let's jump back into that passage and kind of see where Paul is going to take us. So watch this. And the first question I want to ask as we look at this is, what is Paul praying for? And you'll see it in verse 16. So if you look back at verse 16, Paul's praying for something very specific, and the location is specific. He says that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, now notice with power, through the Spirit in your inner being, which means you have an inner being. Now in verse 17, you find out that inner being means the heart. And so your inner being and your heart are the same thing. As you have an outer being, as you behave, you also have an inner being that's filled with your emotions and desires and focus and thoughts. And what he's saying is that God has to touch you with power in your inner being, meaning God has to meet you there. See, the heart in Hebrew and in Greek is not the seat of your emotions. We think of it that way. Valentine's Day is coming up, right? Guys, get ready. It's coming up. And the heart is not simply about your emotional state. The heart in Greek and Hebrew, it's the idea of who you are. Today we may say it's your mind, I don't know, or it's your ego. But your heart is the totality of your identity. And what Paul's saying is God's got to get down there and meet you and meet you for where you are. The person that you are needs to encounter God. And he's going to give us four reasons why this is important. And here's the first reason. It's in verse 17. He says, I pray that God would show up with power in your inner being, verse 17, so that Christ 
may dwell in your heart through faith. Now, I want you to understand what Paul's praying for is stuff you already got. Because you are in Christ, these things are already true about you, but you're not experiencing them. I don't know if that makes sense to you. You have things that are true about you in Christ, but they're not moving. They're not changing you. They're not directing you. So, for example, like in Galatians 4, in Galatians 4, uh, it says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, that's me, born under law. I can't move. I'm going to have to stay right here. Born under law to redeem those under law, that he might give us the full rights of sons. But because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit that calls out Abba, Father. So we are no longer slaves but sons, and since we are sons, God has made us also heirs. Jesus came to adopt us as sons and daughters. The Holy Spirit came that we might experience what it means to be a son or a daughter. That's what Paul's praying for. He's saying, guys, you already got this stuff, but listen, you have to, you have to pray that God would work it down and you would encounter the real God would begin to encounter the real you. So the first thing that he says in verse 17 is he's praying that we would live out of our communion with God. That your confidence in life would come out of the fact that you are regularly meeting with God. That you know God and that God knows you. And he's praying that reality would become true of you. And he's praying the power of the Spirit would kind of come in and God would become alive to your heart. Now the second thing he prays, we see it in verse 17 again. He's praying that you'd be strengthened through the power of the Spirit in your inner being so that, notice, here's the second one, you'd be rooted and grounded in love. Because, see, as you go through life, you're going to have a lot of experiences that say, I am not rooted and grounded in love. I am rooted and grounded in chaos and in a world of hurts and pain. And as you go out in the world and you live above the surface, that's kind of what life is. I mean, when people tell me, you know, I look at the world and I just know that God is love. I'm like, what world are you looking at? I, I see a very dangerous world, dog-eat-dog kind of world where the strong overcome the weak. I don't find myself rooted in love, and he's praying that the power of the Spirit might come alive, that your identity, meaning regardless of what you've done or someone's done to you, your identity would be firmly established in the love of God. You already have this, but you're not living out of it. So two ideas so far. Here's the third one. We see it in verse 18. And I pray that you may be strengthened, verse 18, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. Now notice he doesn't tell you what he's talking about. He just kind of lists. I pray that you would know the breadth, depth, height, length of what? Of God's love. That he not only wants your identity rooted in his love, what he wants to do is to unpack how great it is. 1 John 3, how great is the love. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. How much do you linger on the greatness of God's love? You probably linger a lot on the greatness of the problems we have. Greatness of the problems in our country, in our house, in our homes, in our business. But how much do we spend praying that the Holy Spirit would awaken us to the greatness of God's love through Jesus Christ? He's saying, you got to pray that in. It's not going to happen unless you're willing to live in that interior life. And then finally, verse 19. 
He says, I pray that you would be strengthened. Verse 19, that you would know. And I love how these two knows are in here. Notice this. That you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that you would be filled to all the fullness of God. The big picture is I want you filled with the fullness of God. What does that mean? You need to know beyond knowing. Do you know what that means? I know the Grand Canyon is amazing. You guys have told me about it. Some of you have been there. Some of you have hiked it. I know guys that have hiked that thing, gone down to the bottom, camped at the bottom. That may be you. Came back out. That's amazing. But I've never seen it. And so if I've never actually been there, would you say that I know what it's like to be at the Grand Canyon? Listen, I watched the documentary, you know, National Geographic. I've seen it. I've seen pictures. Why do I need to go? Because there's a knowledge that's deeper than knowledge. It's called experience. And when he says, I want you to know beyond knowledge, I want you to encounter it. I want you to experience it. I want you to rest in it. I want the reality of God's love to be something that is a driving force, just like your fear may be driving you. Your insecurity may be driving you. Do you know what that means? Because that drives us, doesn't it? Sometimes it drives us to compete, to accomplish. I want in the same way the love of God to come in and to begin to drive and direct and guide your life. What are we talking about? Chip Dodd in his book, The Voice of the Heart, he says this. He says, the most difficult and significant journey we could ever take as human beings is 18 inches long from our head to our hearts. But what's the problem? We have been taught how to live life on the surface. We live in a world that stays on the surface. And within the church, often we're not really taught what it means to go beneath the surface. We're taught to lead, lead this kind of surface. Like, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? Just loving the Lord, brother. You know, living, life, living my best life now. You know, you know those phrases. You know that stuff affects us. Because life may be horrible, like you're in a fight with your wife or your husband or things are going on and you're like, yep, yeah, just living my best, just loving Jesus. You know how it'd be. That's how I live. And it's not true, right? But we are taught in our culture, you know, just be a man, just be a woman, just let the water go under the dam. Don't worry about it. You know what that is? It's like pushing a beach ball. Have you ever seen this? You tried it when you were a kid. Let's get it to the bottom, right? I want to get it down 10 feet and get like six kids together, right? You're all trying to get it down. But what happens is the further it gets down, the hotter it comes up. And all the stuff in our life that you're pushing down, you're just fooling yourself. It's coming back up. It's coming out in agitation, anger, rage. All of that starts coming out of us because we're not addressing it. And so we need a way of addressing the stuff that's below the surface. And here's the problem. You have a major problem, it's called sin. And see, sin wounds the soul, and sin wounds the soul of others, and you have a heart that is very deceptive to yourself. Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Your own heart deceives yourself. I'm fine. I'm fine, right? I'm fine. Things are okay. And I don't know if you realize this. In the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing so often, he's taking us beneath the surface. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, don't commit adultery. I'm not doing that. I've never found myself in another woman's bed. 
yeah, but Jason, that's not enough. I'm not concerned about above the surface. I'm addressing the lust in your heart. Can we talk about what's driving you? Hey, don't kill people. I've never done that. But I care about the murder and the bitterness in your own heart. What's Jesus doing? You need a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And what that means is not a righteousness on the surface that looks good. It's a righteousness that allows God to address what's really going on, the 90% that we don't see. And we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, the Pharisees were deceived. Jesus constantly says, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. Then you get to great books like Romans. In Romans chapter 1, you have this huge list of Gentile sins, you know, uh, younger brother sins, getting drunk, homosexuality, sexual debauchery, orgies, drunkenness. You know, and all the Jewish people who are reading Romans in chapter 1, they're like, go get them, God. Those people are ruining our life. They're ruining our country. They're ruining the world. And you know what Paul does? Chapter 2, verse 1 is he starts to shift the focus from all these Gentile sinners that are ruining everything. And in Romans 2, verse 1, this is what he says. As God's spirit focuses on them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on the other, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And you know what they're thinking? I'm not practicing sexual immorality. I'm not getting drunk. I'm not staying out. He goes, look at your heart. The same wickedness that's driving everybody else is still in you. You're just as self-righteous. You're just as angry. You're just as driven by your own desires, but you won't let God in. See, chapter 1 is the gospel of the Gentile. Chapter 2 is the gospel to the Jew, to the moral person. Our heart deceives us. And if we're not willing to admit things, we can't address things. I love Mr. Rogers. He was a believer, Presbyterian. We can forgive him for that. But this is what he said. Fred Rogers said this. He said, anything mentionable is manageable. But if you can't mention it, you can't address it. And the stuff that's driving your life is the stuff you cannot mention. It's called a blind spot. And the people around you have been telling you about it. They see it. But we don't. And what would it look like to see it and then allow God, not in shame, not in self-hatred, to meet you there with grace and with healing? What would that look like? Because, see, the Bible says the key thing that's keeping you from change is it's sin. It's your sin. It's the sin of others. But we need to define what, is, what does sin look like? I like this book, The Relational Soul. Been reading over the last year, and it defines sin this way based on Genesis 3. It says, Sin, and this is by Richard Plass, he said, Sin is a mistrustful state, a mistrustful state of being that moves us from communion to alienation by means of disobedience and pride. What is the core of sin? I can't trust God to direct my life because I know better. Where does that come from? It's Genesis 3. Adam and Eve look at God and say, God, I don't, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can surrender to you. I think I got a better idea of how to manage my life, and I think I have a better idea of what is good and what is evil, so I'm going to trust myself. And in trusting myself, what happens is shame, fear, and guilt enter the world. And suddenly, when there is a lack of trust, there's no intimacy. You know this in close relationships, but when you don't trust somebody... It's really hard to be connected to that person. 
And where there is a lack of trust, what happens is separation is exactly what we see in the garden. Adam and Eve, when they do not trust God and walk with God, they become separated from God. And in that place of separation from God, shame, fear, guilt, it all comes into the story. So watch this. Just quickly, going to jump into Genesis 3. And I want to kind of show you what happens to the human heart when God's presence is pulled away. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, first thing they notice when sin comes in, I'm naked. Now, earlier on in chapter 2, it says they were naked and unashamed, meaning they had nothing to hide because, see, God loved them, and because of the love of God, they loved each other. They didn't have anything to hide. But as soon as sin comes in, for the first time, humans experience shame. Shame says you are not enough. And if people really knew you, they would reject you. And all of us have something right now that you would be deathly afraid to share, certainly to this room or to others. There are things in your life you're afraid to share because of shame. Because if you knew that, I don't know that you could accept me, and I don't know that you could love me. And when that comes into human relationships, those relationships do not survive. And Adam and Eve are not only separated from God, but what you start to see is a breakdown in their separation between each other. They feel ashamed. And trust is key to relationships. So watch this in verse 8. Watch what happens. And they heard a sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And notice what the man and woman did. They hid. Now notice, this is something that God did with them every day. God walked with Adam and Eve. They communioned together. They were in fellowship. And suddenly, when sin comes in, I got to hide. I'm afraid. I'm not enough. I gotta hide and I've gotta hide from God. Now that's kind of foolish. It's like my kids when they played hide and seek, you know? It's like, why are you hiding in the same place every single time? I know where you are, but you still go, oh, right? And God's kind of like, oh. That's how I translate this. Because it says in verse nine, and the Lord God called to the man and said, okay, where are you? I don't think that's geographical. I think it's relational. What's going on? Have you ever had that with somebody? Where are you? Hardest thing to admit is where you are. One of the scariest things to do in a relationship or in life is just admit, this is where I am. And because Adam's afraid, he hides. Shame, fear, he hides. And, and, and what he, he does here is he not only in shame pulls away from God, but he covers himself, right? He finds fig leaves. He finds something to hide his shame. He then hides from God. And then finally, verse 11, it says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, she did it. (laughs) Right? Hey, you gave her to me. Who's the idiot? I mean, Let's be honest, this is not humble language. She did it. I came home, dinner was prepared. What else do I do? God, if you were in my position, this is called justifying. Have you ever done that? Because what are they experiencing? It's called guilt. When the human heart experiences guilt, all these defenses go up. Because I got to defend myself. I can't be 
I can't be broken. I can't be sinful. I got to have it together. And he blames the woman and he also blames God. What do we see here? It's compensating. When sin comes into the world and it wounds us, we think we got to go above the surface. I've got to live above the surface. I got to cover, and a lot of us can cover with a lot of great things. Success is a great way to cover. Success is an excellent way in life. And, and in my life, that one of the hardest things I had to do, and it's still difficult for me, is to admit that I have been hurt. I went through most of my life going, that didn't bother me. And you know what happened to that hurt? I mean, I fueled it in the right way. I became competitive. I'm going to be the best communicator. I'm going to memorize more scripture. I'm going to study harder. I'm going to know it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to have it together. And so when I go out in the world, I'm covering with fig leaves. I don't want you to know how hurt I am. I just want you to see how successful I am. And then you might love me. But you know what? Because of that, no one could do. Do you know what no one could do? No one could love me. Why? Because that's not real. Come on. You're not always going to be successful. You're not always going to have it together. And if people can't see you, and you know what intimacy means? Into me see. Isn't that great? Yeah, you've been wondering what that means. That's called redneck definition right there. Into me see. I see you. And see, that is the deeper work that God wants to do in your life. How do we deal with this? we got to go back to Ephesians 3. Are you willing to walk with God? That means, church, you've got to be in Scripture. You've got to have God's words to speak into your life. You've got to learn to be in prayer, all the spiritual dis disciplines. You've got to learn kind of the contemplative life that at the end of day, the day, sometimes you need to ask that question, God, you know, where did I see your love today? Where did I encounter you today? How did you try to get my attention today? And at the end of the day, just simply to reflect. You know, that's, that's what the Jewish people did for centuries. It's all in the Psalms. You'll have daytime prayers and nighttime prayers, prayers of reflection, prayers of confession. And we have to learn how to walk with God in communion throughout life. Instead of trying to hide, instead of trying to pretend, we have to allow God to address the issues below the surface. And it is, it is a frightening thing at times. But God in his grace and God in his mercy, as he addresses those things, he brings out a greater and fuller life. A life that is rich and a life that is free. This is the life that God invites us into if we're willing to be with him. Hey, I don't know where that impacts you, but we're going to spend a few moments in reflection. And we do that by sharing communion together. If you didn't grab the elements when you came in, I want to encourage you to do so. Those elements are available in the back. They're also available up front. And what we want to do in this time, it's really a time to reflect. And I don't know, as I, as I share this, I know what God kind of stirs in my heart. But the reality is the Spirit of God is at work in this room. And he convicts each one of us and he touches each one of us in different ways. And it could be nothing about what I said. And that's okay because God's at work in you. And God is stirring something in you where you need to address that. And one of the best ways to do that is just repentance and faith. The Christian life is about repentance, which means to turn. That's all it is. It's not a negative word. It's a really positive word. To turn away from the things that are drawing our attention and just say, hey, I'm going to look back. I'm going to look back at God. And as I look at God, I'm going to see his truth, his mercy, his grace, his power, his authority, his justice. 
And Father, in that place, I want you to do a work on my own soul. And for some of you, maybe you've never responded to the gospel. The gospel is the good news that through faith in Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, we have a relationship with the Father. And I'd encourage you, some of you today, maybe the Spirit of God is saying, why don't you start following Christ today? To accept his invitation of salvation, to say, Father, accept me through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I know I have I've rejected you. I've walked away from you. I know sin is a part of my life. Would you forgive me, receive me, and adopt me as your child? And maybe that's the place you need to go. So let's spend a few moments just reflecting in prayer together. being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Father, would you strengthen us with power so that we might walk out of here knowing our identity is rooted and is grounded in the love of Christ. And that we may be strengthened to comprehend just how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that we would be filled with the fullness of God. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, take and eat for this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us receive it together. supper he took a cup and he said this cup it represents the new covenant the new testament that is established in my blood let us receive it together if you need to be prayed for this morning i want to invite our prayer team to come forward maybe this was a moment in which you decided to follow christ for the first time i'd encourage you to come up to the prayer team, just let them know that. They want to help you, guide you. Or if you just simply need prayer this morning, it's a great opportunity. So prayer team, would you guys come on up front and would you stand together as we, as we close this service out?